Between our first and our last breath, our life is a series of seasons. Every high and low is a season that shapes us. It all started when we wanted to have another baby. We got pregnant really fast, but also lost really fast at eight weeks. It was the most devastating thing. As we started trying again, we got pregnant quickly and things were looking great. Though I was filled with fear, once we got to the second trimester, that started to fade until I went into my 18-week appointment and there wasn't a heartbeat. I was beyond crushed. I don't think I've ever felt so empty. However, through this season, I was reminded of a vision that God had given me many years before. The vision was this. I was standing at my front door and my teenage children were coming in with their friends. Immediately, I had a powerful feeling that the love of God was surrounding them. This vision has been something I've held on to ever since. I knew that God had a plan for me to be a mother of many, not just my own kids, but others as well. One year later, God gave us the great joy of welcoming our little Gracie into the world. After all that pain, I felt him giving my pain a purpose. After some time, we started wanting to have baby number three. Yet again, we had another loss. Despite all the back and forth between blessing and disappointment, I feel like these past six years of joy and loss after joy and loss have pushed me closer to God. To know the sorrow of losing a child, just like He did, it's devastating. But it is a joy to know that He uses our pain to help those around us. I've had countless people share their story with me because I first shared mine. Many friends ask how they can help those going through the same losses. And today, I have the joy of reporting that our story didn't end there. In fact, by God's grace, we welcome baby number three into the world this December. I can't help but see the tangible proof of the promise that God gave me over 10 years ago. Hey, let's thank Emily for sharing that difficult story. Today's topic is disappointment. It's disappointment. Some of you will uh, be disappointed to hear that No Shave November is almost over, and I am very excited. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about uh, disappointment and its effect on our lives and ultimately the healing we can find in the gospel. Amen? Amen. So I was 18 years old, and I was... uh, Uh, going out to a college ministry. It's what we called them before they were young adult ministries. And uh, I was driving over to the west side of this college ministry called The Way. It was like 45 minutes out. And uh, the one person you never expect to meet on your way to church is God. Right? I don't care how holy you are. You never expect God himself to show up. And I remember driving and just getting this real sense uh, that the Holy Spirit had invaded my car. And I just, I was like so overwhelmed with like, man, like I feel like God is calling on me and speaking to me right now. And I, so I pull over my car and I pull over by this Gresham uh, Station Starbucks. You guys know where that is? And so it was like the only coffee shop at the time. There wasn't cool places like stomping grounds back then. And I pull over this, I literally, I'm like, I need to encounter what God is saying to me right now. And, and I just start listening. I start praying. And I felt like the Holy Spirit in this unique way was saying, hey, you know what that guy does on Friday nights? preaches the Bible, cares for people, serves people, and leads them to Jesus, he's like, I felt like the Spirit was saying, man, I'm going to do that through you. That's the calling on your life. And I'm just like, what? And I go from being this guy who's like, I I, I want to be a professor, I want to be a teacher of some kind, to like, no, I want to preach the Bible. 
I want to teach people about Jesus. I want to make disciples. And so I end up going to Bible school. I, I do the whole thing. And, and I am aiming for a job in ministry to use what God has given me uh, in that setting vocationally, right? To become a pastor. And uh, fast forward four or five years later, I end up at a church. I'm interning for free. I get hired. And uh, this is that church right here in the next photo. No, I'm not at a church. This is behind a grinder right here. (laughs) This is four or five years later. And look how this good looking guy right there, right? Just grinding knives. You see the studs. If you could see those like on the pants, you know you have cool pants when they have studs on them. And and I'm literally like, this is what I do for the next four or five years. I am behind a grinder at Benchmade Knife Company, and I am sharpening knives with like a really cool pair of Kevlar gloves. Like this is what my ministry was. And so, and actually I want you to zoom in on this for a moment. This is like where I, from five in the morning till uh, 3.30 or 4 every single day, five days a week, what I spent my time staring at. This was the ministry calling that God had apparently made to me. This is where I ended up. And to be perfectly honest, I wound up feeling extraordinarily depressed, right? Don't get me wrong. We were still serving. We, we let a little ministry out of our apartment and all this stuff. But like when I was here, I was at my darkest. As a matter of fact, I got, I, I got so depressed at one point, I got something called shingles, Uh, I don't know if you guys know what that is. It's like these bumps all over a nerve center. And we go to the doctor and I'm like, what what is wrong with me? He's like, this is shingles. He's like, it's super weird though, because like, you know, you're 20, 22, 23 years old. And uh, this is usually elderly people who get this. And he's like, are you super stressed out or something? And I was like, well, I hate my job. And my wife's like, I can confirm, dude hates his job. And he's like, maybe that, maybe that did it. And I'm just like spiraling out here. This was a season of disappointment for me. This was uh, ultimately me experiencing this meaningful calling or what I perceived as a meaningful calling that led to meaningless years behind a grinder. And we only have two options in a season of disappointment. And as we engage in Psalm 73, and I do hope you have a Bible, open one up. If you're new to Jesus, there are Bibles all over the tables, and we're going to have the verses on the screen. What we're going to see in Psalm 73 is essentially that you have two options, two ways that we can respond to our seasons of disappointment. And the first one he's going to delve into is the option of entitlement, entitlement. What do I say entitlement? Entitlement um, comes from, ultimately leads to disappointment disappointment, if we were to kind of dig into the anatomy of it, is often the gap between what we have and what we feel that we deserve. That's what disappointment is, that we feel this entitlement to certain things, and the gap between what we feel we deserve and what we actually have often is what disappointment is. And we're going to hear the psalmist describe this. So looking at our Bibles, Psalm 73, beginning in verse 1. He says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now, stopping even right there, I want you to see what he's saying here. He says, hey, you, Yahweh God, you are a good God to Israel. You are so good to your people. But then what does he say? Notice the clause here. He says what? You're good to your people. But you're an amazing God. Look how good, how faithful you are to your people. But as for me, 
my feet had almost stumbled. He almost fell into sin. He almost fell away from God. Why? Look at verse 2. Or verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That means like well-fed, right? They have it all. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. They have it all. Their hearts yet overflow with follies, with foolishness. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. You guys see what he's saying here? This is God's word. And what he is saying here is that these evil people, they have what I want. See, scripture is not often difficult to understand. Certainly there are some passages that are harder than others. But here in the psalm, we can relate with what he is saying. We understand what he's saying because he is being vulnerable and the scriptures on their own are understandable and relatable. And what is he bemoaning? What is he lamenting about? He is describing how evil people, man, they have it all. And yet here I am and I have nothing. I'm a follower of God. I I actually do all of these righteous deeds and yet they get it and I don't. What, What he's describing here is entitlement. I feel disappointed because I don't have what I deserve. And this lie pervades the human heart, and it ultimately has its origin in the garden. In the garden, if you're new to Christianity, the Bible begins uh, with the creator God creating all things through the word of his mouth, and he ultimately establishes this paradise, a garden where he places the first humans, Adam and Eve. And then a figure called the serpent, or Satan, ultimately comes in, And he begins to convince them of this lie. And if you've heard this story before, read it, or seen it on TV in any shape or form, even if you're not a Christian here, you ever wonder, like, why is it that God would curse the whole universe based on their disobedience in regard to some fruit? You guys know the story. Uh, They are tempted to eat this fruit. And and as a non-Christian kid, I was like, why would that be such a big deal? Just a little bit of disobedience? Doesn't this seem like kind of an overreaction On God's part, like he curses everything. Well, it is unless there's something underneath that disobedience that is much greater. What takes place is the serpent, Satan, actually tempts them not just to disobey, but actually to grasp after Godhood. He was whispering, in essence, this lie, that God is holding out on you that you deserve more than what God has given you. Man, you have to surrender to God. You could be your own God. And ultimately, that lie lives in every one of our hearts, even to this day. And it exists in two forms, okay? And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this down. Here's the first form that we see this lie. Number one is the religious form. We, we believe this lie as religious people, Some of you came here today and you're like, man, they're going to preach against sinners. Now we're preaching against religion today and religious people because that's actually what we see in the text here, that religious people are often the most tempted to believe that we deserve more than what we have gotten. Look at verse 13. He says, all in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed, I love this language, washed my hands in innocence. 
He says, man, I've lived a good life. I've washed my hands in innocence in that metaphor, but it's all been in vain. Why? Because verse 14, all the day long, I have been stricken. I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. I like the way the NIV um, actually translates this. He says, every morning there is brewing for me new punishments. It's like he's saying, you know, like I, I have washed my hands in this innocence and every morning uh, the best part of waking up is not Folgers in my cup, but God is sitting there brewing, right? Which by the way, like why drink Folgers? We have all kinds of good coffee here in the Northwest. Like that's not even a helpful tagline. But what's brewing there for the psalmist is punishments. Is I wash my hands in innocence, and the result is punishment. I want you to see kind of the theology under this that he is admitting his heart had. And this is so important, and I want to describe it this way. It is the morality vending machine theology. The morality vending machine theology. Kind of a mouthful, but here's what I mean. That ruling over the universe is this cosmic vending machine. And all I need to do is take my coins of morality and put it in the vending machine. And what the vending machine is required to spit out is what? Good things towards me. Benevolence. A, a life that I desire to live. So I give my morality and God should give back and spit out what I deserve. And none of us would admit to having this theology, but man, it pervades the human heart. In fact, I would make this argument that it is the default state of the human heart. That religious people, we tend to be the ones who embrace this lie and it destroys us. It destroys us because that is not who God is. He's not a vending machine. Uh, but even as I say that, some of you guys here, you would describe yourself as like, I'm not a Christian, right? Like, I'm not, this is, you're, you're even saying in your head right now, like, this is why I hate religious people, right? Like, they have all these funky ideas about God, and I got to obey and be moral, and then I, you know, get blessings or whatever. And this is why I hate Christianity. And listen to me, I said this is, and, and I'm putting forward that this is actually like the default mode of the human heart. Not just the religious heart, but all of us actually believe this lie, if we're really honest. It is in a religious form as well, a religious form. And uh, here, here's what I mean. Um, we live in a culture entrenched in entitlement. You think about the holiday we celebrated just a couple of days ago. What was it? Thanksgiving. What is Thanksgiving? We call it Thanksgiving because we're giving thanks. Well done, class. Brilliant. <laughs> like we give thanks on Thanksgiving. And I remember thinking about this. Like if there is no God in the secular West, right? We, we, we like have sort of deconstructed and disbelieved in God here in the Northwest. So we're, we're, yet we're celebrating Thanksgiving and always wondered as a non-Christian, like, who am I saying thanks to? You ever like think about this? It is this most theologically significant holiday and we're going like, we're supposed to say thanks. Who are we saying thanks to? Are we thanking like, you know, the sky fairy or like, are we just thanking the, the, the universe itself? Like, thank you universe. You know, we offer you our belief in crystals. Like, like, I'm not just making fun of this. Like, this actually was my question. Who are we? And, and maybe the best, um, you know, reason for saying thanks that I could conjure up as a non-believer is like, you know, you hold hands with the people in the room that are there. And you're looking at them, and you're like, well, I thank you. Thanks for being my brother. Or thanks for, you know, being Uncle Joey or whatever. You know, and eating all the mashed potatoes. Like, we're thanking one another. This is the best that humanity can do. And on one level, it feels like, oh, yeah, maybe that's the right way to approach it on the other level, what we're saying there is like, it's humanity thanking humanity. <laughs> like we're patting ourselves 
on the back for everything, right? And it is sort of the philosophical equivalent of uh, that speech that Snoop Dogg gave. You guys know that speech? Uh, if you don't know, for context, let me show you a, a viral video here of Snoop Dogg. Last but not least, I want to thank me. <laughs> I want to thank me for believing in me. I want to thank me for doing all this hard work. I want to thank me for having no days off. I want to thank me for, for never quitting. I want to thank me for always being a giver and trying to give more than I receive. I want to thank me for trying to do more right than wrong. I want to thank me for just being me at all. That's fantastic. How much theology you can derive from TikTok and Reels. What's Snoop Dogg doing there? It's so funny because at first, like, he's, he's giving this speech, and he knows it's going to shock people. He's like, I want to thank me, you know? And, and they, like, they, like, burst laughing. And then he's like, no, I'm actually serious. Like, I want to thank me for believing in me and taking no days off. And, and you see the shift where people are like, yeah. And they, they go from laughing at this to starting to agree with it, like it's some kind of sermon. And you know why they do that? Because that is the only sermon that this world has to offer us. It is the sermon of entitlement. That I define me. That I thank me. That I deserve. It's I got this with my hands. So we thank ourselves. And this is the lie that pervades the human heart. And ultimately, this is speaking to the entrenchment of our entitlement that I deserve, that I should get. And so we have no one to thank but ourselves. And, and let me tell you this. Some of you actually bought into this. You, you would say, I'm a humanist here. Let me just contend to you right now that that is going to destroy your soul. Ultimately, this actually deconstructs not only our faith in God, but it actually deconstructs the very essence of our souls, of who we are. Look at verse 21. This is what the psalmist says in the passage. He says, when my soul was embittered against God, not giving me what I want, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. What he's describing here, this word for beast is actually behemoth. He's describing literally an animal. He's not just saying I'm beastly, like I'm just vicious, that's true. But he's saying I essentially am devolving into a lesser version of myself. This is like Nebuchadnezzar, if you were here for, with us for the Daniel series. If not, he was a great king that worshipped himself and required other people to worship him. And ultimately, his life devolved. And he, was, uh, he began like, living outside like an animal. Because this is where that heart ultimately goes. That we actually deconstruct that I'm constantly angry at people for having the thing that I want. That I'm constantly bitter, even at God himself. That, that deep down I'm just disgruntled. I'm not myself anymore. In my story, it was, I, was, I was devolving into depression. And so what our hearts need to ultimately cry out for is healing. Is healing. And so many of us think that healing will come in our season of disappointment when God would actually deliver. Man, everything would change for me if God would just open heaven and pour out this thing that I've been longing for. And, and listen, I don't want to diminish your disappointment. I don't want to diminish like, oh, you're just entitled. No, the truth is some of us are disappointed about real losses and real things. And that is, that is honest. And, and I, I want you to experience healing. Healing, the lie says, comes when God delivers on that. And the truth is this, healing comes not by impar God imparting what we're grasping for, but actually by removing what we're holding on to. 
Healing comes not by God imparting what we're grasping for, but by God removing what we're holding on to. This, this feeling of entitlement actually needs to be removed. Um, my wife, she was kind of nauseous, kind of sick for like a year, a uh, little before COVID. And she, she just wasn't feeling good. Um, could, not, not anything major. We wouldn't even ask for prayer requests for it. She's like, I can't put my finger on what's wrong with me. Like, I just feel like I'm not myself. Um, and so we tried everything, right? Like, we're putting, like, uh, gosh, we're giving her, uh, you know, medicine. We tried medicine. We tried just, like, let's stuff you with vitamins, you know. We didn't eat all the, all the vitamins. We'll eat healthy foods and, you know, like, raw vegetables and, and different things. We're like, you know what? We're going full. We're getting oils now and just, like, anointing her and just drink the oils, right? Like, whatever we could put, get our hands on to, like, put into her, and then one day I was at um, Young Adults, and we were getting ready and everything, and I get this text, like, you need to come home and take me to the emergency room. And I was like, oh, okay. So I'm like, I, we head home, we go to the emergency room, and there uh, they are like, I'm talking to her because she has all this, this pain. And so they put her under this, uh, you know, MRI scan and all that, and they look at her, and they're like, hey, um, the problem isn't like you need to put this stuff into you. Actually, we need to remove this appendix. <laughs> This is a poison appendix that's full of infection, like, it needs to come out, and she got the surgery, not, like, scheduled later, but, like, no, we're cutting you open right now. And so they took it out, and the next day, she's like, I already feel better. <laughs> like, like, already, she's just like, it's all gone. Like, I feel normal again. And listen to me, in the same way, so many of us are waiting for God to give us something. But deep down, what we actually need is gospel heart surgery for God to remove this entitlement. So our two options, one, were entitlement, which ultimately leads to despair. But number two, the better option is this, not entitlement, but encounter. Encounter. What do I mean by encounter? What do you mean encounter? The psalmist describes being pulled upward out of himself and into a vision of the eternal God and what he ultimately does in eternity. And we, church, need to be pulled upward and out of ourselves, not deeper in. Verse 16, look at this. He says, and now just listen to the language here. It's profound. But when I thought how to understand this, he's wrestling through his disappointment. And like many of you are wrestling through your disappointment. When I thought to understand this, how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's exhausted. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why wouldn't God do this? I couldn't understand it, but verse 17 he says this, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. You guys tracking with this? Do you hear what he's saying? Man, I was wrestling with bitterness. Man, I was overcome. I was overwhelmed. I couldn't understand. I was even mad at God. I was mad at people. I couldn't figure it out until, until I went into the sanctuary of God himself, until I encountered God. What is the sanctuary? The sanctuary was the place where God's people would gather to encounter God, God himself. That's what the sanctuary is. You would go in to see, to experience, to know God, God himself. And so he says, man, we need an encounter with God. And I wonder how many of you have actually had an encounter with the living God. Like, have you actually encountered him? Have you gone in and met with him? Have you seen him, so to speak? He goes on to say, when I encountered the face of God, when I, when I met with him, 
He gets a vision not only of God, but what God does and what he does in eternity specifically. Look at the end of verse 17 where we cut off. He says, then I discerned their end. That is his enemies. The enemies of God, verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. Just so you know, it's not a good thing, okay? So they're slipping. What is the slipping? You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. The feel-good verse in the Bible. Put that one on like a coffee cup. Utter terrors. Verse 20. Like a dream when one awakens. And that's what it's going to be like when Jesus cracks open the sky. Like a dream when one awakens. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, when you return, you despise them as phantoms. Also not good. And afterward you will receive me to glory. Okay, these are the verses of the Bible that people skip, just so you know. And we are going to go straight through them. And, and here's why, because all of God's word teaches something very important. And um, what he's talking about here isn't fun, but it's true. And he is saying that in the end of all things, the eternal God returns. And when he returns, hear me on this, we get an eternal perspective. We, we need this eternal perspective here in what he's about to say and what he just said. This is the eternal perspective, and I want to give you two things that essentially we see here. Number one, when God returns, God will give everyone what they deserve. God will give everyone what they deserve, and no one said amen to that. God will give everyone what they deserve. And, and listen, why is, why, is he, why is he even bringing this up in the psalm? This is for God's people to sing. God's going to give everyone what they deserve. The psalms are the hymn book. Like, why would we sing this? Here's why we sing this. Because your soul needs to cling to it. Because what he is asking and what your heart is asking is the same questions he's been wrestling with. What? Why do they get what they don't deserve? Like, when will God give me what I deserve? our disappointment, our entitlement. Why won't you give me what I deserve? And here's what I believe about this passage in the totality of Scripture. Listen, God will give everyone what they deserve if they want it. But you do not want what you deserve. Amen? This is, this is the first part of the gospel. I don't want what I deserve. I don't want you to receive what you deserve. Romans 3.10 tells us this much. This is Paul writing in the New Testament. As it is written, you like God... Aren't we good people that deserve good things? Well, as it is written in the scriptures of the Old Testament, Paul says this, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good. You're like, God, what about me? He's like, good question, here's the last one, not even one. <laughs> Amen? Like, Sorry, but the bad news of the Bible is you are not a good person. And as I'm a preacher, I'm a holy man. I might have like scruff and like not nice clothes, all right? Preacher, holy man, I am not a good person. We are depraved sinners. And he says every single one of us is not righteous. And because of that, uh, this, this logic moves to Romans 6, the same letter, same logic he's moving here. Romans 6 verse 23 tells us this. For the wages of sin is death. And so the bad news of the Bible is none of us are good. And uh, when we get our paycheck for the work we've done in our lives, as Paul's saying, the work we've done in our lives is not deserving of reward, but instead our reward is death. 
And uh, like, if I was making up my own gospel, I would not preach this. But this is what the Bible teaches. He's saying, listen, the reward for our sin is ultimately death. And so ultimately, when we look to heaven and we shake our fists at heaven, why haven't you given me what I deserve? God's saying, I don't want to give you what you deserve. And ultimately, number two, what he says here in the, in the kind of last verse we read there in the previous passage of Psalms is that, yes, everyone's going to get what they deserve if they should desire it. But number two, God is offering infinitely better than we deserve. He is offering us infinitely better than you and I deserve. Verse 20, at the end there, he said, and afterward you will receive me to what? To what? You will receive, you guys have your Bibles open? You know. To glory. To glory. glory. Underline that, circle that, highlight that, put a star, smiley face, exclamation points, bubble letter. Like this is the key. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. Here is, here is the gospel. We need to go back. First, we deserve death. That's what we deserve. And yet, here's what God offers. Finishing out what I left out of Romans 6.23 in the New Testament. What does he say? For the wages of sin is death. The bad news, but here, here's the good news. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus died for sin in your place for your sin, receiving the death, the punishment that we deserve before a holy God. And yet he absorbing that offers full forgiveness. He rose again. And if you have not believed in Jesus, you need to know it is only bad news unless you receive Jesus. And Jesus wants nothing more than for you today to call on him by faith to receive forgiveness. And listen, whether you're a Christian Today in hearing this, you're like, uh, you know, you already understand this or you're a non-believer. You need to believe on this today. I want to make something very, very clear, and it has to do with this word glory. So the gospel is we don't deserve, but we hopefully if we believe in Christ, we'll get what we do not deserve. But what do we get? I keep saying you're going to get this thing. And many of us read this Romans 6.23 and, and understand the gospel this way, that Jesus died for my sin so that if I believe in him, he rose again, and I believe in him, then I get what? So go to heaven when I die, right? I will have eternal life. Is that the gospel? Some of us are very confused right now. Like, I feel like yes, but also you don't seem like that's the answer. And here's um, why you feel that way. Because that's a true statement that Jesus died, and if we believe on him, we will go to heaven when we die. But it's a true statement. It's not the totality or the heart of the gospel. Christians in here. The gospel is not that you get heaven if you believe. The gospel is not that you get the stuff that God was holding out on you, and ultimately you're going to have this renewed body and all that stuff that's beautiful. Yes, it's going to happen, but here's the truth. That's not the good news. You know what the good news, the word gospel means good news, and you know why the gospel is good news? Not because we get heaven, not because we experience resurrection. All of that's good. It's not the good news. The heart of the gospel and your reward if you believe in Jesus is this and simply this. You get God. That you would get the living God. What we preach is not be a good person. What we preach is, man, if you believe you get all this stuff, that is a lie. What you get is you get the pleasure, the joy, the eternal satisfaction of knowing your creator and redeemer and savior. And he wants to know you. 
and he wants to invade your life, and he wants to engage you with his presence, and you get God. That's the gospel. Amen. This is the great thing that God is offering himself. Notice that even in 623 of Romans, it said eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the good news. And what the gospel is that you and I, and what heals us from our disappointment, is that we are owed nothing. But God has given us everything in Jesus. God has given us everything in, his, in himself. And I'm not just saying this to like jump from the psalm to like a gospel message. This is the, this is the doctrine of the psalmist. Look at verse 25. And before I read this, let me just say, these two verses are worth putting to memory. These two verses are the very key to unlock not only the scriptures themselves, which they are, but they are also the key that is going to unlock your chains to disappointment. They are the key to unlock how life goes from disappointment to amazement. Look at verse 25. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the key. And here's why what he just said there. Did you guys catch it? He said, listen, take everything from me. Take it all. You can take from me anything because in God, I already have everything. That's what he's saying. He says, my flesh and my heart, that's all you have. You came into this world naked with nothing but your flesh, and you take even that away, and God is the strength of your heart and your portion. He is the fat. He is the desirable part. He is the thing that our souls are longing for, non-believer. What you are longing for is you stuff things, and you desire, and you're wanting stuff, and you're wanting people, and you're wanting satisfaction. All the world has to offer. If I were to give you that 10 times over, you would still be left empty. Because your soul is longing for God and God alone to be known and to be invaded by his presence. What I'm talking about here is something a guy named John Piper, theologian, pastor, calls Christian hedonism. Now, even the phrase Christian hedonism, if you were like a university student, like studying philosophy, would make you laugh. Uh, because the word hedonism, um, you guys know what the word hedonism means. Hedonism is a philosophical framework that says uh, basically everything uh, my life should be given over to the pursuit of pleasure as the highest end, right? And so the hedonist is basically a philosophical way of describing somebody who's like, yeah, I live for pleasure. And so I live, you know, in Southern California. I make a ton of money. I sleep with everyone that walks. I like go after girls. I go after money. I go after fame because this is what I'm living for. For right now, we say it simply like this, YOLO, right? You only live once. And so go after the highest pleasures you could possibly get. It's sex, money, power, prestige, fun, sunshine. Like this is the hedonist. And so to say the phrase Christian hedonist is like, I don't think those two words should go together, right? You're like Southern California, all that like Christian. <laughs> those. But why does John Piper put them, put them together is because most of us would say the Christian is anything but a hedonist. And the Bible comes in in verses like this and says, wrong wrong. The Christian is to pursue pleasure as the highest end. The difference between the Christian and the everyday hedonist is the Christian hedonist pursues the correct pleasure. 
the highest pleasure, and everybody else is pursuing stuff that will never satisfy. You have an ache in your soul that can be only filled by Jesus. John Piper uh, goes on to say, the best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe has acted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove every obstacle between us and himself so that we may find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring his infinite beauty. That is the gospel. And so we can say that God is the good news. God is the gospel. The only question is, have you seen him? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Have you been satisfied in him? Here's what I believe. When you actually embrace that, when you see him and know that he is better than the world's greatest thing, then and only then will you look at everything in life, including your disappointment, differently. There is a video I want to show. And he, uh, this is a young man who is colorblind, colorblind, which is, you don't just see in gray. Like, everything's sort of muted and, and browns, right? And it's all sort of, uh, it's very different from, obviously, seeing color, being colorblind. And so everything sort of blurs together in terms of color. And his friends uh, get together, and they buy him these um, monochromatic glasses. And these glasses are designed to help him see. And I, I kind of want you to to actually experience what happens when they do. These will work. But our soft team thought that you deserved the chance to try it. Put them on, bro. As soon as I saw them, I was like, no freaking way. He knew what it was, and he immediately broke down. And I was in tears. I could see everyone behind him was in tears. I was like, okay. <laughs> Like, what a gesture for them to coordinate, and there's more than 30 of them, like, and everybody's got busy lives, and it just, not only did, did they give me the glasses, which is a nice gift, nice gift, but they all, like, banded together to do that for me, which was just pretty overwhelming. Fran's a really awesome person, and everyone on the team loves him and knew how much it would mean to him. Look at us. To give him that opportunity to see something that all of us see every day and take for granted almost uh, was really special. Pull the balloons. Oh my God. Leave them on, leave them on. <laughs> I remember there was this one yellow leaf on a tree, like straight ahead of me, and as soon as I put them on, like it just popped out, like like striking, like it wasn't like a light brownish gray color, like it was, it was yellow. Those are the same! <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! Oh, thank you so much! Thank you so much! Thank you so much!
That's the gift that I want you to experience. When you see and savor Jesus, when you know not just what he's done for you, but the beauty of who he is, when you know his kindness, when you know his nature, when you're walking with him, when you have a relationship with him, your life goes from gray to color. He is the color of life. If you're wondering why, you're disappointed. If you're wondering why life is gray and dull, it's because your soul is longing for more. And that more is found in Christ alone, in walking with him, in knowing him, in getting up in the morning and reading the scriptures and seeing him face to face, in prayer with him and him speaking to you and knowing you, in just contemplating his goodness. Sometimes I just sit there and I think about the beauty of who God is. And life goes from gray to color. And not only life, but your disappointment. Even your disappointment, even your trials, even your suffering. I love what he said. He said, they look different. They're not the same anymore. They look different. And listen, when Jesus, when you are reoriented to the beauty of Jesus, and I can't, I wish I could just give it to you. You can preach him. But God has to open your heart right now and allow you by his regenerating spirit to see and savor him for the first time. Or maybe you're a Christian and you've forgotten this beauty. Or you're not living in light of it daily. You're just focused on that disappointment. In those five years uh, that were disappointing for me, where I was growing depressed and all this stuff, I said that they were meaningless. They felt meaningless, but they weren't. What God was teaching me in that season, what those five disappointing years were about for me, was believing that God is enough. That God isn't a means to another end. Ministry, of serving, of leading, of whatever. Something that you want. God is an end in and of himself, and he is the most beautiful end you could live your life for that you could experience. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Because what happened was now I look back at those years and believing that God is enough, I see that those years weren't about me working behind a grinder, but God sharpening me by changing me, by devoting me to himself alone. And I want you to experience that even in your disappointment as we conclude. So listen to the words of this hymn. Maybe even close your eyes right now. This is beautiful. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Heavenly Father, I want to pray right now that you would, in some sense, invade this space. That you would allow us to encounter you. That's what we need, God. We need an encounter. We need to have our hearts awakened as from a dream to see you, to savor you, to know you. This is not a work I can do, God, and I feel so desperate. I wish that every person here who came wondering if there was a God, I wish I could just give you to them, God, but I can't. And so I'm begging you, Holy Spirit, will you come in and will you change hearts? Will you flip them upside down? Would you give them eyes to see, Lord God? Right now, I pray. I'm asking in, that, in this exact moment, Eyes would be awakened. Hearts would be moved. 
that the world would go from gray to color in you, that you are the greatest gift, and would you give that gift to us today? And Father, for those who are believers in here and who are wrestling with disappointment or anything else that, in, that proves an obstacle to their vision of you, would you remove that obstacle right now? Take things off the throne of our hearts right now. Would you move among us as we worship you and fix our eyes on Jesus? And all God's people said,